0: Hey y'all, this is Sam Brady. You're listening to Reading the Egg, the new audio flash podcast where I am reading you stories that I have written over the years, kind of telling you some of the inspiration behind them, maybe giving you a little insight into where they came from. Um my launch of this podcast has been a little more has been a little more intermittent than I had intended it to be. It's been a crazy fall, and I just haven't had had the motivation to sit down and record any more episodes than I've already put up. So, hopefully I'll be a little bit more regular with it now. I feel like I'm kind of starting to get my groove back. So, I'm going to go ahead as we go through the holidays and see if I can get some stuff up for you. Today, I want to talk to you a little bit about NaNoWriMo. Um... I try to do NaNoWriMo every year. There have been a couple of years when I haven't even bothered to start over the last, I think, 12 years. I think 2008 or 2009, I think, was the first year I did it. I forget which exactly. And I was going to do it this year, but I didn't have an idea. I didn't have anything. And I said, well, I'm going to sit down and I'm just going to start writing on November 1st. I'm going to see what happens. And... I got one day of writing done, maybe, you know, 17, 1,800 words, something like that, and just never went back to it. So this is one of those years where I started NaNo, but didn't actually do anything with it, which is kind of disappointing to me, but I just, like I said, it's been 2020, and I was hoping that NaNoWriMo would be something to help get me out of the doldrums of 2020, but it didn't really happen this time. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about NaNoWriMo from 2016 because that to me is the crowning achievement of my entire writer's life. That year I sat down and I actually told the story. The one that I have always wanted to write, that I've always wanted to tell. And that year I sat down and I wrote it out. And Between starting in November, a little bit of work in December, and a lot of work through January, I actually finished. And the final story wound up being around, I I forget the exact number, it was somewhere around 95,000 words long. By far the longest thing I've ever written. And I said, well, now I want to edit this. And I actually printed it out, and I've still got this printout. It's a stack of papers, it's probably about four inches thick. And, which is still not as thick as a single Brandon Sanderson novel, by the way. But, I have this stack of papers, and for four years now, I keep saying, oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to edit this, and then I don't. But, you know, that's, again, me being lazy. And, at some point, though, I do want to do it, because I love this story, and I want to get it done right. And, you know, I wrote that, NaNo, in 2016, but I actually... Started trying to write this story once back in 2010. It's been about 10 years now. And I got part of the way into it and just didn't like where it was going, so I stopped. But what I'm going to read for you today are a couple of things that I wrote for this story back in 2010. And I really like these things, and I'm not sure if there's a place for them in the current iteration of the story because they're, you know, because the way I'm telling the story kind of changed. So I'm going to, you know, so I don't know if there's a place for this for this older stuff in the story, but I want it, you know, I want it to, to get out there. So I'm going to read these two things to you, two selections. One's longer than the other. Uh, the first one, um, the way the story was written then and now, it's got an introduction that kind of talks about the fact that, you know, that the lead character, his name is Myron. And, you know, it's talking about the fact that Myron considers himself kind of an unreliable narrator. And he's kind of talking about, you know, the fact that, you know, stories happen to people, and but they can change over the years. And they go from being stories to being tales, to being legends, to being myths. You know, there's this progression that his story takes the further you get away from the events that actually happened. So this, that I'm going to read to you now, was kind of an interlude that was coming later in the story that kind of continues the musings on the changes in a story over the years from the introduction. This is called On Tales and Those Who Tell Them. It says, Before I started this, I told you a little about the evolution of a story. Now I want you to understand exactly what it is I am trying to do. You may have noticed that I am telling my story. I also told you at the beginning that I am trying to turn a collection of facts into a tale. Why would I want to do that with my own story? Am I really so arrogant to assume that anyone wants to read the story of how Myron got his start and then to transform it into a tale? Of course I am. I'm a bard, after all. It takes more than a little arrogance to pull that off successfully. Still, I want you to understand what is happening here. If I told you the story the way it really happened, you would be bored to tears and would put it away. So I change it here and there, make it more dramatic, more romantic, more adventurous, more everything, until it sucks you in and leaves you saying to yourself, where's the next page? But there are no pages left to turn. Now you're asking whether everything I just told you about Daniel Barjavid's visit to Ty was fabricated. Of course not. Some of it happened just as I related. Some didn't. Some almost did. Some didn't even come close. My goal, the goal of any storyteller, is to get you so into the story that you can't tell the difference between what is real and what is exaggerated. To get you to the point that you don't even care where that division lies and then inspire you to pass the story on to others perhaps making even more alterations in the fabric of events, until eventually Myron and the familiars will be remembered across the land as mystical warriors who fought undead wizards and vanquished malevolent foes while playing legendarily raucous music and kissing all the prettiest girls in town. Not that it would take being transformed into myth for that part to ring true. On with the story. So that was Myron. He's a bard, and, you know, the Familiars is his band, if you will. And this was going to be Myron's story, and it was going to talk about how Myron, you know, kind of got this band together and what they did. And I kind of shifted it over the years to where it was less about Myron, and it was more about the entire group. So, you know... I had several chapters after that that were about Myron's life as he grew up, and those chapters are, you know, not going to be a part of the story anymore, because it's less Myron centric now. But one of the one of the pivotal events in the original version of this story was that Myron's mother died. And it kind of gave him a push that he needed to really get serious about his music and about what he wanted to do with it. And this is one of my favorite things that I wrote back then for for this story. And And to this day, it remains one of my favorite things I've ever written. And I think it's fantastic. And because I don't think it's got a place in the new story... I still want it out there, and I still want people to get a chance to experience it, because I really think it's cool. And I'm going to read it to you now. Again, this is, this is going to be a scene describing the funeral of Myron's mother. We buried her three days later in accordance with the Form's funeral, the traditional funeral rites of the three. The priest of the mother in Thai was Lev Gruber. A gangly man of elderly years, Lev had been burying people in the rocky ground of Thai or at sea for longer than most people in the village had been alive. The day he buried mother, he stood next to an open grave that had been hewn out of ground full of rocks and gnarled trees. The burying ground was a most inhospitable place. On that shore, though, it was near as peaceful as a place could be. We all stood around Lev in a circle as he drew a blade from a sheath behind his sash. He was a priest dedicated to the mother, but all of the three had to be invoked for the form's funeral to be observed with full piety and honor. We bowed our heads respectfully as Lev held his left hand up towards us, palm out. We saw faint scars marking an X on his palm. Lev drew his knife twice along the scars, making fresh cuts along the path. He grimaced slightly as blood welled out of the cuts, and he shook it over the grave. Blood for the shepherd, said Lev, as blood dripped from his hand onto the ground. He knelt and scooped up a handful of dirt with his injured hand. Dirt for the mother. He mixed the dirt with the blood still running from the cuts in his palm, and sprinkled the mixture over mother's body as it lay in its grave. A soul for the reaper. He raised his voice. Accept these offerings on behalf of Alcine Duque as she comes in to after We intoned the ritual response. Lords, please, hear our plea. Lev continued the prayer. Accept the soul of this good woman as she travels away from this world. He was supposed to sing then, but I had asked to be allowed the honor of singing my mother's funeral song. I left my harp on my back. This song was meant to be sung unaccompanied. I closed my eyes, pictured my mother's smiling eyes and laughing voice in my head, and sang as genuinely as I could. Even then, my voice wasn't the best, but the words rang true in the chill air of midwinter. I sang the traditional funeral hymn known as the Invocation of Traveling keep her in your heart always keep her in your mind always never forget her as her soul travels on the road to after for she will be waiting there for you speak of her kindly always speak of her with respect always never malign her as her soul travels on the road to after for she will be waiting there for you. And we will be with her always, and we will know her always. Never forget her, for when our souls travel on the road to after, she will be waiting there for us. Tears ran unchecked down my face as I finished and stepped back to stand beside Da. Nodding to me, Lev began to pray again. I also pray for these men, lords, for Marcel and Myron, who are left without wife and mother. Watch over them, lords. Shelter them, mother. Guide them, shepherd. Defend them, reaper, against any depredation until they can see their beautiful Asin again. "'Again we all answered, "'Lords, please, hear our plea. "'I stepped forward once more, "'lowering the hood of my fur-lined cloak as I did so. "'I had been holding a hat in my hand, "'a hat my mother had bought for me "'for my name-day that spring. "'A bard needs a hat, Myron,' she had said. "'You've always said so. "'It was a drover's hat.' a short, squat crown with a wide, floppy brim that drooped down over my eyes. She had tied a piece of ribbon around the crown as a band and had stuck a bright blue-feathered writing quill into the band as a plume. I wear that same hat to this day. The day my mother was buried, I placed it on my head and flicked the edges of my cloak back in a brief echo of the flourish I had, I had invented on stage that first night. I pulled the harp around from my back into my hands. I looked out at my friends and my da. My heart is heavy, I said. My mother has died. I tried to go on, but emotion got the best of me and my prepared speech stumbled to a halt. I swallowed, but refused to wipe the tears from my eyes. Those were mother's tears, and I would have her see them. I sniffed and whispered. I wrote a song for my mother. I paused again, looking at all the faces around me, cheeks red from the biting wind, eyes red from tears. My harp is tuned to mourning, I said, my voice rough, and my voice to the sound of wailing. I played. I closed my eyes, and I threw back my head and eyed. I played the song I was working on when Mother fainted. I was in the minor tuning I had discovered, and the sounds that came out that day picked up the funereal mood and the winter day and magnified them, taking all of us to a place we didn't even know we could go. I didn't play a melody as such just a series of notes, runs, plucked chords and single notes, whatever I could reach with cold fingers. The underlying theme, though, always came back to the bones of the tune I had been playing that day in the store. Nor did I sing. I keened, I moaned, I wailed in grief for my mother. There were no words that I could have used to express my feelings, so I didn't even try. I simply laid my heart bare in the burying ground that day. Someone in the crowd had brought a tambourine, and they began to play, providing a shaky, irregular beat for my harp, and someone else produced a fiddle and began skirling runs that wove in and out of the lines I was playing. It didn't occur to me until later, but I was using such an odd tuning that Edgar had been forced to retune his fiddle to match what he heard as he listened to me play. He told me later that he had never even considered trying a tuning anything like what I was doing. The three of us played for what seemed like hours, but couldn't have been more than a few minutes. In the end, The fiddle and tambourine dropped out of the tune, leaving me alone to finish it. I brought it home with a final change in mode to a triumphant march, and my voice bellowed defiance, becoming words for the first time. Mother may be gone, and we will miss her, but we are still here, and we will live. We will live, and we will honor her memory." The final chord rang out, then faded. The onlooker stood silent for a moment, then cheers rang out, shouts of mother's name, shouts of, We will live! as the tambourine that had accompanied me rattled and clattered. I watched Lev. He let the cheering go on for a few seconds. Just as he was about to stop it, I held up a hand and stopped it for him. He looked at me, a question in his eyes as the, tears, as the cheers died out. "'The gaiety of the tambourine is stilled,' I said. "'The noise of the revelers has stopped. "'The joyful harp is silent. "'We go back to our lives, priest, as you have taught us.' He nodded, smiling, and held up his own hand in benediction." "'I wonder if this young man really is only twelve years old. "'He speaks with the knowledge and experience of a much older man.' Das smiled. "'A sad smile, but a smile nonetheless. "'He is his mother's son,' he said. "'Lev quirked an eyebrow. "'So he is. "'No higher compliment can be paid upon this day.' Go back to your homes, friends, and to your lives. Live them as Alcine de Quique would have, as her son has instructed you today. The joyful harp is silent now. He stole my line here. I didn't mind, though. I had found the phrase in a dusty book on Da's shelf, so I guess you could say I had stolen it myself in the first place. But take that joyful sound with you and let it inform your life from this day forward. The blessings on the th- of the three be upon you, my friends. The funeral was over. As the crowd started to leave, some gathering in knots to speak amongst themselves, some coming to talk to Da, I walked to stand beside Mother's grave. She lay inside, wrapped in the finest linen the store sold. It was the best we could do for her this time of year. The shallow grave had been scraped out of the frozen ground. Rocks would be brought from the shore and along the roads to cover it over and build her cairn as all the others in the burying ground had been built. The village carver would engrave her name on one and place it atop the pile once it was completed. For now, I just wanted to say goodbye. I will not tell you what I said. I have always held it close to my heart and consider it among my most cherished of memories. There are some things I will not share, even here. Suffice it to say that if you knew what it was, you would weep from having heard it, as I did that day for having said it as I do now for remembering so that was the funeral of Myron's mother which I just I love that scene I love what I did there <laughs> I know that sounds really dumb I i love what I did there no I mean I just that's one of my favorite things I've ever written I think it's fantastic and I wish there was a way that I could use that in the final version of the story, but it's, there's just nowhere to put it. You know, that scene doesn't need to be in the new story. So, it's going to always be a deleted scene, a DVD extra. So, someday when this story is published and I have a website, I'll probably put it up there. And you can read it and cry at the fact that it wasn't in the the final story and you can write to me and say why didn't you put that in the story and i'll say well go listen to the podcast you'll find out so see if you're listening to this you found out first you got the scoop so that was it so that's my 2016 NanoRimo look back and that's the end of this episode of reading the egg this is Sam Brady. I'm going to try to put another episode up in a couple of days. I'm trying to record like three or four episodes today. I don't know if I'm actually going to do it, but I'm, I'm trying to do it. I want to at least get two or three recorded so I can have a little bit of a buffer and I can get this going again because I want to post more regularly. They're not always going to be this long. That was kind of a long excerpt, but I hope that you will always enjoy what you hear here. I hope you'll like my stories. If you want to, you can check out the blog that some of them come from at sambrady.wordpress.com. That is writing the egg. And this is reading the egg. I hope you enjoyed yourself. If you haven't already, hit subscribe on whatever you are listening to. And I will see you next time.